Good morning and welcome to Poplar Spring on a, on a rainy Sunday morning. The Lord is, is good and kind to allow us to come to, to be uh, gathered together as his people to worship him this morning. And so thank you for your, your faithful uh, attendance and presence here, uh, even on a, on a nasty kind of day. Um, I want to call us to prayer, uh, ask um, each of you to, as we pray this morning, to invite the Lord by the Holy Spirit to search your heart, um, ask him to convict you of sin to bring you uh, to a place where you repent and are, are, are filled by His Spirit this morning as we gather as His people. Um, also want us to pray this morning for our partners around the world, um, uh, locally here and abroad, and, and then just for our church family as we're in this study of 1 Timothy, the household, the family of, of God. I want us to pray for one another. And so as you think about those in your growth groups, uh, those in your discipleship groups and your relationships that you have here in, in, the, in the faith family at Poplar Spring, I pray for those brothers and sisters that you know are, are going through different things, uh, health-wise or, or just spiritually walking through uh, tough days. And, um, and let's pray for one another this morning. So would you join me as we pray, as we go before the Lord? Father God, King of the universe, we stop this morning and acknowledge that your goodness and your mercy has no end, that this morning, that we are gathered this morning as a people from all over the place, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of differences, and yet the thing that we rally around, the thing that we champion, the thing that we lift high is the name of Jesus Christ, because you've made us sons and daughters. Father, we were running away from you, we were pursuing our own interests, our own sin, and God, you pursued us by your grace, and you called us, and you, you, you didn't just bring us back and, and make us faithful workers or acquaintances, you made us sons and daughters. You adopted us into your family and called us son, called us daughter. And so this morning, that's the thing we come this morning, and, 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 and that's the anthem we raise, is that the gospel is good news. It's saved us, it's made us, it's, it's knitted us to be a family this morning, and so I thank you for the family that is Poplar Spring, that this morning, in, under the sound of my voice in this room and in the other room, and even on the front porch, God, that there are men and women, boys and girls, that have said yes to Christ, that have repented of sins, and that we'll spend eternity together worshiping King Jesus. And so would you, as you're faithful to do, would you convict us of sin this morning? God, would you show us places where we're, we're, we're holding on to habits or addictions or, or even things that maybe we, we didn't even know were sin a week ago, and we're holding on to them with clenched fists, with white knuckles. Would you help us by your spirit and by your kindness, Lord, to, to open our hands and say, here, and, and give it to you. Repent this morning. Ask for forgiveness and follow after you. God, if there's any here this morning that have never done that, ever, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be their spiritual birthday where they come to know Jesus and follow after Jesus from this day forward. Would this be a destiny and an eternity-changing day for someone who's never placed their faith in you, Jesus? God, we lift up to you our, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, not just in this faith family, but in the household of God around the world, ones that we've never met, our partners that we've that we've partnered with in Malaysia and in Uganda. We pray for Lamino Town and Pastor Hillary. We pray for Baltimore and, and the brothers and sisters there that we, that we love and that we're partnered with. We pray that, that the gospel go forth in those places this morning as well. 
And that in this cultural moment that we're living in, at this time in the history of the world, that, that King Jesus, you would be magnified in a unique way, in a, in a way where you're lifted up, even in, even in these circumstances, that King Jesus would be magnified. And so would you work in our hearts this morning to draw us to Christ, to form us into the image of Christ. As we come to your word, God, would you make us to have open and receptive hearts, ears to hear, and, and, a, and a heart to understand what you're teaching us from the scriptures this morning. And that, God, if we're confronted with sin, even in your word, that, God, you would cause us to be faithful and obedient. God, as we sing, I pray for Pastor Michael as he leads us in song. God, would every word from our lips not just be something we do out of routine or because we're supposed to because we're at church and we sing catchy songs, but, God, would they be prayers from our heart? Would it be worship from the, the innermost part of who we are this morning as we lift up the name of Christ in song? Would it be a sweet aroma to you as your people sing your praises? Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would meet with us and change us. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.
All right, church, if you would grab your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This morning, uh, only covering a couple verses. I know that's hard to believe. Um, and some of you just got really excited and thought, hmm, 15 minute sermon. Today is short sermon Sunday. Maybe not. Um, as I was mapping out uh, over a year ago, uh, looking at 1 Timothy, um, looked at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 and thought, man, we, we, we really need to slow down uh, when we get to these two verses because it covers a, a confusing topic in our world today, a, a very uh, hot button topic in our world today and, and in our culture that we're living in and even more so in the last several months. Um, and so to do it well, we need to slow down and, and have the proper understanding, uh, the appropriate uh, foundation in place for understanding what God's Word is saying to us, what Paul is intending when he says in verses 1 and 2, um, the, these, these exhortations to slaves. Some of you have looked ahead and read ahead. That's a good thing to do. Uh, that's, that's recommended, encouraged. Uh, and so you know this morning in, in verses 1 and 2, the, the exhortation that Paul's going to give the church in Ephesus is concerning slavery and slaves and their relationship to their masters. Now, if you remember, Paul's, he has a, an argument that we've been walking through for several weeks now. This argument that we find beginning in, in chapter 3, verse 15, the idea that the church is the household, the, the family of God. That's sort of been the theme for our series. It's on all of our, our graphics and, and uh, website and and that idea that God has made us into a family, Paul's going to give us specific instructions for how the various parts of that family, that household, interact, how they relate to one another, such that the gospel's on display. And so we've seen already uh, exhortations to, to, for elders, and then how you care for elders, exhortations for father, mother, brother, sister, and the relationships and the, the generational dynamics that exist in a family, uh, exhortations for widows, and, and how do we care for and love those in the church who have no family. Um, and, then, and, then, and then even in broad categories, things like the, the, the need for and, and the, the purpose for training in godliness. All of that fits within this, this understanding and, and this, this idea that Paul's getting at, that we're a, we're a household, a family, as the people of God. And when we hear Paul talking about slaves in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, um, that's another aspect, or that's another part of this family in the context that Paul was writing in, in Ephesus, there, were, there, were, there was a large number of slaves and masters in the church of Ephesus. And Paul's giving them exhortation for how they, within the family, still continue to put the gospel on display, even within those relationship dynamics. And so when you hear Paul talk about slaves in verses 1 and 2, many Christians begin to wonder whether Paul is, is promoting or giving approval to slavery. And this is not the only place that Paul's going to mention the institution of slavery and, and the system that existed there in Ephesus in particular. He's going to do it in Colossians. The church at, uh, in, in Colossae had the same um, exhortation in, in chapter 3. They're given, they're given instruction there. The, the, the letter of, of Philemon to Philemon, the, the whole thing is revolving around the relationship between a slave and a master. And, um, and then you add to that the Old Testament you go back and you see about how, how the, the Old Testament speaks about slavery and you begin to question and maybe wrestle with, does God himself support slavery? And, uh, and those are all good and fair questions and should cause us to slow down and think through these things in, 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 in the context that they were written in and in the application of them today for us as the church in a completely different culture. And so here's the roadmap this morning. Here's where we're headed. I'm going I'm to approach this, this topic, this subject, these two verses with four questions. 
Uh, I'll give you the questions and then you'll see them on the screen as we go. But the, question number one, what does history teach us about slavery? And I want to do that and spend some time there this morning because it lays the foundation for us to understand what Paul's saying. Second question, what does the Bible teach us about slavery? Question number three, what does this passage about slavery teach us today? So that's where we'll get into chapter six, verses one and two. And then, what does slavery teach us about the gospel? So let's jump in. First question, what does history teach us about slavery? I start here uh, because when I say the word slavery, the majority of us probably immediately associate the word slavery with what happened in Europe and America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, our understanding, what we've been taught in schools, what we've seen in history books, what we see on movies that we watch. And while our greatest need is to understand what God has said about it in his word broadly, and in, in particular verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 of, of Timothy, 1 Timothy, we need a foundation to understand what the Bible's even talking about when it uses that word because of the context we live in. And so I'm, I'm starting here, and, and I'm going to take a little more time than I would normally on something like this because we, we must understand the, the historical context and the background that's going on underneath this passage or we'll, we'll at least be confused, or have some really wonky theology. Um, and so consider, at a minimum, that slavery in history has at least looked, I'm going to give you four this morning, different ways that slavery has existed and looked. There are others, and there are exceptions within these, right? So I'm not giving these as like hard and fast, it was this way all the time, and it worked this way perfectly every time. Certainly there are exceptions to any system or any, any culture, any any uh, pattern that we see in history. But I'll give you four. The first we see in the Bible is Hebrew servanthood. So if you go to the Old Testament, you see a system that God allowed for his people that provided for impoverished Israelites. So servanthood in the Old Testament was a way that the Israelites could care for other Israelites and their families. So Deuteronomy 15 it tells us that God desires for none of his people to be poor, uh, to, be, to, be, to be impoverished. And ne nevertheless, though, we know we live in a sinful world, we live in an imperfect world, a fallen world, and as a result of that, poverty exists. And so God provides a system for the Israelites living in a fallen world at that time in the Old Testament to provide for them. I'll read to you from Leviticus 25. This is where we really see the details of this, this practice handed out in, for this Hebrew servanthood, this idea, this system. So Leviticus 25, 35 through 34, uh, 43, you can turn there with me or you can listen to me read. It says, if your brother, so here Israelite, Hebrew, becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves." You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So in short, there was this system whereby a person could sell himself into slavery in order to escape poverty, right? 
So God's giving that allowance. He's giving that command and instruction in the Old Testament. And what you see there is that the, the person was not to be treated unfairly. They were not to be treated unkindly, but as a, as a hired servant, a worker. And there was this contractual agreement that existed where the person could work for the other person until he could establish himself as a full and free citizen again. Right? So were there abuses? Of course. <laughs> As long as we are dealing with sinful human beings and sinful people in a sinful world, there are going to be abuses, and certainly there were under this system. But the intention was not cruelty. And God designed this system of servitude to provide for the care and, and, and to provide, provide care for the poor, not to misuse, misuse them and mistreat them in, 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 in extreme ways that we've seen at other times in history. So that's Hebrew servanthood. We see it in the Old Testament. Well, as we jog through history, we get to really New Testament times in the, the Roman Empire, and we see the second form, and the major form that we see there is Roman slavery. And this is important because this is the context that we find in Ephesus during Paul's day. This is the context that 1 Timothy 6 is being written in. So this one's important. And what we see in Roman slavery is that it was deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in the economy of the Roman Empire. Uh, scholars estimate that one-third of the people of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's 50 to 60 million individuals. Like, let that sink in at how, how uh, evasive that, that was. That was a huge system that was going on in that day. And during this time, it looked very different depending on the place and the circumstances. Uh, some slaves were indistinguishable from workers, from just average, everyday employees. And they could have a variety of different jobs, things like teachers and, and craftsmen and managers and, and cooks and even government officials. I was reading this week, doing some background research, even government officials could be, could be slaves and be owned by someone else. And many slaves owned slaves themselves. So this is a very different system than what we're akin to. And it's important to note that in Roman slavery, it was not based on ethnicity or skin color. That's a major difference. It was more based on uh, economic and social status. And, uh, and in order to gain entrance into the Roman world, into Roman society, and to become a Roman citizen people would sell themselves into slavery. This was huge because being a Roman citizen, you even hear Paul talk about him being a Roman citizen. It was a thing that was valued. And so very similar to Hebrew servanthood because it was uh, financially to your advantage uh, if, you, if you got to a place of poverty to sell yourself, to be able to work, to be a full and free citizen, people in Roman slavery would sell themselves to Roman owners so that they could gain citizenship. And so many slaves uh, and most slaves were released by the time they were 30 years old. And had years to provide and build a life for themselves under this system. Um, it was, it was a, a thing where they, in their, within their own volition, their own desire, willingly sold themselves for this purpose. But I want to be careful. And I don't, I don't want you to hear me wrong when, I, when I'm walking through this. Just because this was more humane, right, Roman slavery, than chattel slavery in the U.S., it doesn't mean that it was good, right? A slave was still a slave, the slave was marginalized, powerless, prone uh, to disgrace, prone to insult. There were still grueling and unfair and harsh taskmasters. Um, even if the, it was by their own volition that they entered into this contractual agreement, it was, always, it was not always good. And, and on top of that, there were things like sexual abuse and other things in ways that these people were mistreated. And so we want to be clear, even as we understand historically what's going on here, it was more humane, but it's still less than Christian. It was not by God's design. It was not a good thing. And so that's Roman, uh, Roman slavery, Hebrew servanthood. Let me give you a couple more since we're just trying to define these categories. I think it helps set up for 1 Timothy 6. You see indentured servitude. Um, this, this hits close to home for many of you. 
Many of your ancestors uh, probably came to our country uh, from this background. It was common during colonial American uh, days, and, and as, as many could not afford to come over to the New World, what they would do is they would sign a contract. They would contract themselves out as indentured servants and agree to work for a household until they could uh, earn enough money to pay off their debt. Historians estimate that uh, between a half and two-thirds of European immigrants came over as indentured servants. And so it's very likely that you know someone or one of your ancestors came this way to our country. Uh, the picture here, though, is really similar to Hebrew uh, servanthood, except for that it's not grounded in the commands of God. With those rules and regulations, it's, it's grounded in a desire for financial freedom and prosperity and, and a desire for, for, for your own um, progress. And then fourth, and this is the one that's most obvious to us, is chattel slavery or the, the African slave trade in our country. Is the, probably the category that most of us think of when we hear slavery. And that's because it was promoted in the 18th and 19th centuries in the U.S. and in Europe. And millions upon millions of Africans were ripped from their families and their homeland and traded and were sold against their will. That's a primary difference. Uh, they're transported in cruel and unthinkable conditions that would leave many of them dead before they arrived at their destination. And that possibly was even better for them than what they would experience when they got to their new master's home. Working conditions that were harsh, but on top of that, on top of the physical abuse, you had sexual abuse and torture that was commonplace. Now, were there exceptions? Sure. Sure. Uh, you can find exceptions to just about anything in history, but as a system, that's what we see. And here's the kicker, and this is the major difference you see in, in the African slave trade in our nation and something like Hebrew servanthood or the Roman uh, slavery is that they were viewed as lesser human beings. That's a, that's a fundamental difference. And Frederick Douglass, a leader in the abolitionist movement in the 1800s, he wrote this about his first slave master, a, a Captain Anthony. You may remember reading things like this when you were in, in high school or, or junior high. He says, he was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slave holding. He at times seemed to take great pleasure in whipping a slave I've often been wakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of my own aunt, whom he used to tie to a joist and whip until she was literally covered in blood. No words, no tears, no prayer from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. And so you ask, Matt, why in the world would you share that? Like, what's the, what's the point here? Why have you been going now for 14 minutes? And it seems that all you've done has been laying this out for us. Well, a couple things, a couple reasons I would do that. One... I think when we address a text like this, on a topic like this, and a subject like this, we need to re be reminded of the, the horrors that took place in our nation not so long ago. And, and wherever you're at, politically, culturally, on the things going on in our nation, as a believer, as a Christian, and that, that believes the Word of God, we have to be able to look backwards and say, that was horrendous and should be condemned. Like, we can at least agree to that, right? That, that considering another human being as less than human for your own financial gain, is less than Christian. That's, that's sin. That's wrong. But the second reason, the second reason, and the main reason I would have, I've spent the time doing this this morning, is that what we see in 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, that, that we're going to be studying through this morning, is not what Fred, Frederick Douglass was describing in the 1800s. This is not that. There's a, there's a difference. We're using the same word, but they're different systems. Both flawed, both terrible, but different. And if your only frame of reference for slavery is what happened in our nation, then when Paul gets to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he gives these exhortations to slaves, 
it's going to leave you very confused at best or with some really, really strange theology uh, at worst. And, 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 and some of the slaves that Paul's going to give uh, exhortation to here, 1 Timothy 6, in the context of the Ephesian church, some of those slaves were sitting every Sunday as the church worshipped amongst Christian brothers and sisters who loved them, genuinely loved them, and who cared for them and provided for them financially, similar to the way that we would have seen in the Old Testament. And on top of that, not only saw them as equal because of the exhortation of Paul here as the family, the household of God, but desired for them, were rooting for them, were pulling for them to get out of their debt, to get to a place of financial freedom. And they were doing all they could to help them get to that place. That's a different thing. Right? That, that's, a, that's a drastically different thing from what we see in the history of our nation um, and, and drastically different thing than regarding another human being as being equal to the family mule or, or dog. Volunteering as a servant for your own financial progress in the Old Testament or in Rome is drastically different than having your 10-year-old son ripped from his mother's arms while she's wailing and sobbing because she knows he's going to a home or to a man who very well may kill him in an effort to get him to work a little harder. That's a different thing. And so I want us to hear these exhortations from Paul and, and have the right context, have the right foundation in place. Were there exceptions to those? Were there exceptions to the one in our nation? Absolutely. But as a system, Paul wasn't addressing chattel slavery in the United States. All right, so let's move on. That's what history teaches us. Let's move on. What does the Bible teach us about slavery? Before we jump into 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, I want to give you four broad, broad uh, takeaways or conclusions that the Bible gives us on this topic. Number one, slavery is not a product of God's creation. It's a product of sin. So even when we consider the Hebrew form of servanthood that we discussed, that we saw in Leviticus, Roman form of slavery that we saw that's more humane but, but still flawed in the church of Ephesus in Paul's day, on an, an every level, no matter which form it is, slavery comes about as a result of sin not the mind and creative power of God. Think about, go back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible speaks about male and female. The distinction is clearly in the mind of God and the creative power of God as he creates the world and human beings to inhabit it. But there's no distinction for slave or free. There's no distinction there for that, for that category, that, that slavery was not a part of God's good creation. Additionally, work, labor, having a job, it was intended in the garden. If you go back, if you remember, God assigned Adam a task, a role. He said, name the animals and have dominion over them. There's work, even in God's mind and creative power, even hard work, duty, responsibility. Yet there's no distinction for slave and free. You fast forward to Revelation to the end. That's the beginning. You go to Revelation 21 and 22. Genesis shows us God's design in creation. Revelation shows us God's intention in the new creation, when he'll make all things right and good, and he'll restore all things in that new heaven. And once again, there's no distinction for slave and free in that fully restored, fully redeemed new earth. Heaven will have no poverty. That'll lead to indentured servitude. And no class or social system that leads to the Greco-Roman forms of slavery. And certainly no abuse and mistreatment like what took place in the African slave trade. In Revelation, sin and slavery will be no more. So we conclude from that, slavery is not a product of God's creation, it's a product of sin. Second major takeaway that we see in all of Scripture is that specific situations in a sinful world warrant specific instructions to a sinful world. I've said numerous times in our study of 1 Timothy, God's Word speaks to every generation. It's His living Word, and it's active, and it speaks to every generation of, of people but it must be understood in the context that it was written in. 
And so when the Old Testament speaks about slavery, there's a specific circumstance, his people, Israelites, in the land of Canaan, uh, that God is addressing. When Paul writes about it in 1 Timothy, there are specific instances, in particular the Ephesian church and slavery that existed even there with masters and slaves in the church together that he's confronting. Now we should draw application from those words, and we're going to in our next part, section, question that we're going to answer But the circumstances are different. And so we have to ask God, teach us what part is cultural and what part is unchanging truth, the principle that we hold to regardless of what generation that we live in. Number three, third sort of big thing that the Bible teaches us. And this one's huge because it deals specifically with what we're talking about today. When the Bible talks about slavery, it does not mean that God is approving of slavery. So slavery is not God's ultimate design. We saw that, or we see that in Genesis, Revelation, and everything in between. It's a product of human sin. And so when Paul addresses it, he's not endorsing it. He's helping to shepherd people that are trapped in it. Because of a sin-stained economic and social system, because of a culture in that day that demanded a need for it, Paul sees a people, a sh- people needing to be shepherded. How do I understand? How do I walk through life in this sort of a system and do it faithfully? And so he's giving them that exhortation. And we have to see that difference. Let me offer maybe an analogy that's not slavery that may help us think through this. Uh, The way that the Bible speaks about sinful situations and yet not God endorsing those situations. We, We know that this happens with divorce, right? You can think about, and go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for marriage was between one man and one woman, and, and it, was a, it was a one flesh union that took place until, their, until one was deceased. And yet, we have divorce. It wasn't God's design, or it wasn't His plan, it's not God's best, and it's a result of sin entering this world and, 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 and fractured relationships, and yet Scripture gives us some exhortation to deal with it in a, in a sin-filled world, in a less-than-ideal reality. You have Deuteronomy 24, you have Matthew 5, you have Matthew 19 that's going to deal with this issue. That's not God endorsing it and saying, hey, go do this because it's a really good thing. I designed it for you. It's God acknowledging sinful world, sinful human beings, make mistakes. Here's instruction in how to live in this sinful world. And so we see something like that with slavery. It's a product of sin. It's, it's God addressing it at different times and in different ways in history. Number four. Our final sort of big, big thing that we see in the scriptures, slavery is to be condemned because it undermines the equal dignity that all humans share, right? So you go to Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So he's repeating it there for us. That's emphasis. He's wanting to make sure we don't miss it because he knows we read fast and, we, and we, we pass over things flippantly. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, mankind, human beings created in the image of God, meaning that human life, from conception to natural death, there is an inherent dignity in all of human life. It's a sad thing that we have to even say that, but we have to be explicit there as Christians. There is an inherent dignity in human life. And slavery undermines that dignity by denying it. By saying, at its core, no matter what form, we just gave, I gave you four forms of it uh, in, in the introduction this morning, but no matter what form, at its core, slavery is saying there are categories of people with varying levels of significance and worth. And Job 31.15 is another text that rejects that idea. Job says, did the one who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same God form us both in the womb? He's asking these rhetorical questions because the answer is Yes. The same God that made you made that slave that was ripped from its, its home and brought to a place against its will. 
In the New Testament, you see the same truth. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, despite the clear differences that we have, that, 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 that are clear to us, even biological differences that we can see and observe, we have equal dignity before God. Now, we may wish that the Bible were more explicit, right, and prohibit and condemn all forms of slavery, but in just these conclusions that we can make, we see that it's ripping the core foundations of slavery out from under it. And so those are some broad sort of statements, categories, concerns that the Bible presents where the Bible, Scripture, the teachings of Scripture rub up against the systems of slavery that we see in history. But what about this passage that we're in today? Let's dig in and see what this passage about slavery teaches us today. And as we do this, as we make application in our day and age, that the, there are practical implications from these verses because we're all subservient to someone. And that's the takeaway for us. I don't think there are any slaves in this room or in this church, um, but we're all subservient to someone. And so here's the one major takeaway. We'll see it in two different ways in the text. But one major takeaway, for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel, serve well under your human authorities. For the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel, serve well under your human authorities. Look at verse 1 with me. Hear the word of the Lord, church family. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, we may not call them masters, but our bosses, our teachers, if we're in school, our CEOs, business owners, the companies that we work for, the authorities that we submit to, whether politically or law enforcement, they hold place in our lives, and that authority comes with uh, the, the command to honor them, to show them the honor that's, that's worthy due to them as a result of them being authority in our lives. And sometimes... I think we have this temptation as Christians, and it probably comes from a good place, but we have this thought, this temptation that uh, I'm, I'm a Christian now, I have a, a heavenly citizenship, I have a forever home that I, am, that I am destined for, and I'm concerned with that true home, and my mind is on that true home, and I'm focused on that true citizenship, my heavenly citizenship, and as a result, there's this temptation that we neglect the responsibilities that we have here and now, and that's wrong. That's, that's, that's the wrong attitude to have. Yes, should, we should be focused on our, our heavenly citizenship, but not, not to, the, to the point that we would neglect the responsibilities, the duties, the commands that we have here and now in this world and with this citizenship. I heard a testimony from, a, from a, an employer. I won't say where it was at. Um, but the, 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 the employer, the boss, was, was, was put off by and was skeptical about hiring Christians because of the experience that he'd had with, with two seminary students. And, uh, and, and it always seemed to be, he said, this was his, his explanation as, as to why he was put off by these seminary students, that they were always just standing around talking about God during work hours. And he said the thing that really, really put him off, the thing that really did it for him was one day when he observed one of them go into the, to the restroom for 20 minutes. And, uh, and, and not that big a deal, except for that when he came out, he heard him say to his seminary buddy that also worked for this same boss, uh, he whispered to him, I just had the most wonderful time. I just read three chapters of the Gospel of John. You wouldn't believe how good that was. And he's, he's hearing that going, like, what? Like, listen, like, like, like that does not please God. To, to, to sit and, and for, for 20 minutes, read the Gospel of John in the John uh, on the boss's time, 
that's, that's not a good thing. And that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what the text is addressing. This sort of thing was going on in Ephesus. The, the, these non-Christian masters, these, these, these slave owners in Ephesus, found that formerly profitable slaves had become disrespectful and brooding and unprofitable. And so these pagan masters were blaspheming the name of God and the teaching, the gospel, on account of these, these Christians and the way that they were working, their work ethic, their ability to do their job. You can imagine how they would, they would even say these things. These Christians are lazy. They're such a waste. They're so otherworldly that they can't even get their job done. They've become disrespectful and pious. That's some baloney, that gospel. only thing I've seen the gospel do is take a good man and make him worthless. And that sort of thing was bringing shame to the name of Christ and to the teaching. And Paul's saying, God forbid. Remember, that's what Paul's getting at here. That's the whole thing about the, the family of God, the household of God. You are the gospel on display in Ephesus. Don't bring shame to the name by, by working as a worthless worker because you're so fixed on heaven. And so take some exhortation here, church. For each of us, the place where you work is likely, for most of us, the place where you work is the place where you are primarily in contact with a needy world. A world that needs to hear the gospel, a world that needs to see the impact and the transformation that the gospel can bring, your workplace is that place for you. It's the place where, 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 where people are, are, are seeing you, the real you, on display. Why? Because that's where stress is. And they observe that. When stress comes, when the pressure comes, when, it, when the kitchen heats up, how are you going to respond? That's where your most energy is expended, is at work. That's where you're at most of the time. So how are your coworkers, how are your, your bosses, your CEOs, the people that are your superiors, the people that you're serving under, how are they seeing you? And what's their, if, if they're connecting you with gospel, what does that look like for them? Would it cause them to bring shame and ridicule in the name of Christ and the teaching? Paul believed that these things were inseparable. Titus chapter 2 is where he's going to say something very similar to what he just said. Titus 2 verses 9 and 10, he says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Did you hear that? That's what you're doing. When you work as you should, when you work hard, when you work with respect and honor to your boss, even when your boss is a jerk, you're adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. You're putting on, right? That's what it means. You're, you're wearing, you're being made beautiful by, being made over by the doctrine of God, the gospel. That's what they see. That's enough reason to work hard and honor a non-Christian boss, even a terrible boss, even a boss that don't like you and, and you don't really like him. Work hard and faithful because in doing so, you're putting the gospel on display. In this, you see Paul's heart, right? The motivation, the instruction here, it's not disconnected from the last several weeks, right? You are the household of God. Display the gospel in your family dynamics. Display the gospel in your care for widows. Display the gospel in your care for your elders. Now, in your relationship to your human masters, your bosses, honor them in the way that you work. What about verse 2? He's equally explicit here. Verse 2 says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Like you can imagine how this scenario unfolds, right? You have a master and a slave. 
Both of them hear the, the preaching of the gospel. They hear the, 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 the most glorious truth in all the world that Christ died for sinners. And, and they both come to believe and follow Christ. Praise the Lord. A master and his slave are, are now followers of Jesus. And they hear the teaching of Paul that we've just heard as we studied through this book. That they are now brothers in Christ. Right? That changes things, right? You had a master and a slave. Now you, you find out that, hey, we're brothers in Christ. We are, we're a family. That regardless of, of, of background, social status, class, how much money I have versus how much money you have, gender, regardless of all of that, we're family. And so the servant, regardless of his, of his previous commitments, think even, even Hebrew uh, servanthood or indentured servitude, right? That I've got this commitment to work for this amount of time until I'm free of my debt and I'm able to get to a place where I'm a full and free citizen. Even those commitments that he's made, he gets to a place where he's like, what are you going to do? You're, who are you to give me orders? Right? You're going to fire me? We're brothers in Christ, remember? You, you can't treat me like that. And so there's this attitude that comes, right? And this is what Paul's getting at. He's charging them not to have that mindset. Don't let it be said of you that, that that's where your thinking would be. And the same is true for us today. There is no place in the Christian employee's life for subtle insubordination, for passive-aggressive comments, for this attitude towards the employee, especially when the employee is a, or the employer is a, a brother or sister in Christ, that you would abuse their grace, their kindness, their, their, their generosity, that you would abuse that because you're a brother or sister in Christ. Paul, in fact, turns the argument around and he says, hey, you ought to serve all the better because the one that you're serving is a beloved brother in Christ, a member of the eternal household that you're a part of. So work hard for him. He's doing you a kindness. Here again, the stakes are high because the spread of the gospel is the thing that's on the table. The relationships that we have, especially within the body of Christ, is on witness to a watching world. That's what they're seeing. So the unity that we have, the love that we have for one another is either attractive or it's a repellent. Either it's a thing that people go, wow, what is that? I've never seen that. That, What's going on here in this dynamic, this relationship between master and slave? I've never seen master and slave operate that way. I've never seen a boss love his workers that way. I've never seen workers submit to a, a, a taskmaster like that. You see, it'll either be attractive or it'll be repelling. And that's what Paul's getting at. Our attitude here, our ethics here, commanded in this passage, make it clear that, that servitude is at the heart of the Christian calling. You are to submit first to Christ. If you're married, to your spouse, to your boss, to political authorities. Submit to them and honor them. And in doing so, you're putting the gospel on display. That's what Paul's getting at. Well, those are a couple practical takeaways that we can see in the text. Even for us in this day and age that's different from that day and age, we want to be able to apply the text. And so I ask you just to just invite the Holy Spirit to convict you. How are you towards your, your, the people that you serve under? Whatever that looks like. But I want to take us deeper than that. I, we could end there with just sort of this application broadly about, about working. But I want us to go deeper than that because I believe that this issue, this topic... Slaves, masters, teaches us something much deeper, and, and it's the fourth question that we're asking. What does slavery teach us about the gospel? When we step back and we look, what we see is that the Bible not only uses this idea of slavery and this word slavery, but it actually goes a step full, further and it redeems the idea of slavery and th- this word even. What I mean is that the Bible takes slavery, a product of human sin, and turns it into a powerful image of God's goodness. Let me show you what I mean in two specific ways. First, it shows us Jesus, that our master has become our servant. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, But Christ emptied himself 
by taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. That word in Philippians chapter 2 is the same word that, that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6 that we've been looking at this morning. That word is doulos in the Greek. And Christ took the form of a, a doulos, a slave, that though he was master of all masters, the king of the literal universe, the king of the universe, master of all masters, we see him take on the form of a doulos, a slave, to come and redeem his people. We get a glimpse of this in John chapter 13 when we see Jesus before his disciples, he takes a, a towel and he, and he wraps it around his waist and he takes a basin, a bowl, and he, and he fills it with water and he literally gets down on his knees before each one of his disciples, including Judas, who would go to betray him, and he washes their, their dirty feet. That's a very practical and, and thing that happened, but you know who did it was the, the slave. The household slave is who did that for those guests. And Jesus, the master of all masters, not just their rabbi, that was walking around teaching them, the, the king of the universe who created everything that is, got down on his knees and he washed dirty feet. And in doing so, he was saying, I've become a slave for you. But then, it doesn't end there. We see him most clearly putting that on display for us, putting on display for us what it meant that he took on human flesh and became a doulos for us in his death on the cross. That he became sin for us in our place to pay the debt that we owe, right? We're the ones that were bankrupt. We're the ones that needed to be sold into slavery. We're the ones that had the debt that we couldn't pay. He came from heaven, took on flesh, became a slave, was abused, was tortured, was maligned, was mocked, was literally beaten to death on our behalf. Do you see the glorious good news, the gospel, even on display in something like slavery, that our master has become our, our slave to purchase for himself a people for his own possession? The Bible redeems that language in that way, but there's another way. The Bible redeems this idea of slavery in that it shows us not only Jesus, our master becoming our servant, it shows us Christianity, that we joyfully become his slave, right? This word doulos that Paul used to describe Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 and this, this instruction that he gives in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this word doulos that's the same in both, it's actually a really common word. Paul uses it all the time. And in fact, most of his letters begin in this way. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave, a bondservant. It's the word doulos. And the idea that Paul's getting at is that the slave, no matter what context, no matter what form of the four that I gave you this morning to start with, a slave is at a, at a very fundamental level someone that belongs to someone else or is under the authority of, of another person. And that's what Paul's getting at. That's what Paul wanted to be identified as. He's not shameful. He's not saying it and being embarrassed about it. He's not wanting to hide it. He's not wanting to minimize it. He's wanting the world to know. My master died in my place, and I am forever his doulos, his slave, a bondservant to Christ. Whatever he says, go, I go. Whatever he says, do, I do. Why? Because he's purchased me. He's given his life as a ransom for mine. And that's the case with each and every one of us who are in Christ. It is our joy and our privilege to be known as a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. And so even in, 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 the, in the sinful pictures that we see of slavery throughout history, slavery and service to Jesus is the exact opposite. It's a glorious freedom. That in Christ you are free from the, the penalty of sin. You are freed from the power of sin. And day by day you're getting closer to the day when you'll be freed from the presence of sin before King Jesus all, for all eternity. There is glorious freedom in being a doulos unto Christ Jesus. It's a glad service rendered to a gracious master. 
And so the reality is, at the end of the day, the question is not whether or not we're slaves. The question is, whose slave are you? We're all slaves. That's what the Bible teaches us. If you, if, you, if you look at this concept, we're either serving sin and self and Satan, or we're serving the master of all masters, the king of kings, the one who died in your place. And so the question that we're all left with this morning, we must answer is, whose slave are you? Who is your master? Let's pray together. And king of kings, master of all masters, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we were the ones with the debt. We were the ones not only with debt, but with a death sentence hanging over our heads, the wrath of Almighty God rightly against us because of our sin, because of our failures. And King Jesus, you came and you died in our place. We worship you this morning, King Jesus, because that is the greatest news in all of the world is that we can pass from death to life. We can pass from an eternity separated from you to an eternity in your glorious presence. And so this morning, for each and every person under the sound of my voice, I pray that they're wrestling with that reality right now. The question as to whose slave are they? Are they a slave to sin, self, and Satan, or are they a slave to King Jesus? The glorious freedom of having King Jesus as our master. God, if there's those here this morning that are followers of Jesus, and yet maybe even this week they've had a bad attitude towards their boss, their spouse, their coworker, someone that they're serving with or under, God, I pray that you would convict even now and bring them to a place of repentance because the gospel on display, the advancement of the kingdom of God is what we should be about and what we want to be about, and we don't want to be a hindrance to that. And so God, help us to live as the household of God. Help us to live as the family of God in a way that puts the gospel on display. God, I pray for each and every man, woman, boy, and girl that's in these rooms this morning, on this campus this morning, that as we go out into the world this week, we would live for King Jesus. Help us to do that by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Couple announcements for you. Uh, it is the last Sunday of the month, and we we had planned to do communion this morning because it's such a nasty day outside. Uh, we're going to postpone doing observing communion, the Lord's table today. It would be unique doing it in the rain. Probably a first for most of us. Uh, maybe not very enjoyable, and so we're gonna we're gonna postpone that. But I do want to give you a couple reminders. The uh, tr- the trunk or treat is coming up. Uh, I saw even some, some bags of candy starting to show up for that, and so you can help in two ways with that. You can, you can bring some candy that will be given away. You can talk to Pastor Michael and get a, a trunk signed up to come in and give it away yourself. Um, different things going on that night. We've got a, we've got a, um, um, it's, it's a, we call it a hayride, but it's really a barrel train that will pull. Uh, kids will have a good time with that. Um, come and be a part of that as an outreach, as an opportunity to be in our community. It's been a long time since we've been able to be out and, and, and minister to our community, serve them in some way. And so you can be a part of that. Um, also, uh, the Operation Christmas. Okay, they're moving every week, like the first week they were there. Oh, that's a good thing then. So, so the exhortation is just get them back then. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me because they used to be there and then they were there and now they're not there. So, and I didn't realize they weren't there until this, this morning. So, Oh, good. So you have the boxes, good, just make sure you get them back in time, and, uh, and that's a blessing, a way we can literally send the gospel around the world, and so you'd be a part of that. Um, I, 
I think that's the announcements I've got. Do you have anything?